Hi, folks. This is Mary Claire Erdenast. Welcome to Play for Keeps podcast. We are recording new plays as podcasts in Ashland, Oregon, as a part of the Ashland New Plays Festival. Today, we are listening to a conversation between Leslie Sleep and Janine Grizzard. Leslie Sleep is an award-winning news reporter, and her first solo play, The Harder Courage, is included in Play for Keeps Premium Collection. This historical drama was a finalist at the Ashland New Place Festival in 2018 and was selected for a developmental workshop at Theatre 33 in Salem, Oregon, with performances August 7th through the 11th, 2019. Janine Grizzard is a playwright, actor, instructor, and since 2010 is the producing artistic director of Ashland Contemporary Theatre. Her one-woman play, Pankhurst, Freedom or Death, which she wrote and performs in, is a part of the Play for Keeps premium collection. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to join us in Ashland, Oregon, October 16th through the 20th, for readings of Starter Pistol by Michael Gotch, Pelicans by David Johnston, The Night Climber by Joshua Rubel, and an honorable mention of the 2019 Kilroy's List, The Way North by Tira Palmquist. As a reminder to all playwrights, Ashland New Place Festival is now accepting play submissions for the 2020 Fall Festival. Go to ashlandnewplays.org to find out more. Please enjoy listening to Leslie Sleep and Janine Grizzard. Hey, Janine. Good morning, Leslie. How are you? Oh, I'm just great. And you? Very good. Very good. Just sitting here with my cup of tea and ready to talk history plays with you. Yes. Yes. How fun to find somebody else who writes a historical play. And and so different. Yes. Yes, it's, it's very different. Um, what was the, what was your purpose in writing this particular story? I had a teaching purpose in writing the story of the lead suffragette in the battle for our right to vote a hundred years ago. But tell me what your um, uh, mission was in diving into history. Well, part of it was just simple curiosity. Uh, when I ran across the the uh, story as part of my job as a as a police reporter. I thought, wow, this is fascinating. You know, I I wonder what what it what what goes on in when you have um, a sheriff who's really the only full time employee guarding a guy for eight months, and and then he has to kill him. And so that was it was mostly curious, but then as I started to dig into it, I found that. The story's not out there. There's there's little bits, you know. There's like around Kalama, there's rumors like, oh yeah, we heard there was a hanging here, you know, things like that. But it's not in the books, and I just felt like, okay, I've got to, you know, how they say, uh, you write the book you want to read, you write, you know, make the play uh-huh. you want to see. Exactly. I wanted to make, uh, you know, get the history out there because it's it is interesting, and I wanted I would read it if it was written, so it wasn't written, so I wrote it. Excellent. That's wonderful. Well, I um, I wrote my play because I attended a workshop in Gene Houston's modality called Social Artistry uh, in 2012. And 
Jean posed the question to everybody, what can you do to help humanity? And we had to come up with a little project that we could do to help humanity. And I thought, well, I can write a play to teach women about the battle for our freedom 100 years ago, since we seem to be still fighting that battle. Oh, I know. <laughs> ERA, <laughs> will it ever? And, yeah, it, and, sure. and it's a wonderful educational play that you've written because, I mean, I know a lot about feminism. I'm, it's, it's important to me, but I didn't know as much about the British struggle as I did about the American one. And to hear the voice of Emmeline talking about the force feeding and the, the reasons that they did the uh, window breaking and stuff and trying to get people's attention and the feedback, the, the pushback that they were getting. And it's like, my gosh, we can't win, but I'm not going to give up. It's inspiring. Well, thank you. They were, they were enormously inspiring. Um, I'd like to say a little bit about what my play is about because um, I discovered in writing this that uh, Emmeline Pankhurst is not a household word in America. And uh, I would say that of all uh, single individual people in the history of the women's movement, she is the one, she is the leader most responsible for putting, putting the cause over the edge and the British getting the right to vote in 1918, right after the war. So suffragette leader Emmeline Pankhurst is recuperating from her hunger strike illness from prison in Paris. Uh, before sailing to the U.S. to deliver her very famous speech, Freedom or Death, on tour, particularly around New England. And her host uh, in Connecticut was Catherine Hepburn's mother, who was a famous American suffragette, also named Catherine Hepburn. And so Emmeline conjures up a friendly American audience in her imagination to try out bits of the speech on and to tell the story about how the suffragettes have reached their current stalemate crisis. So it's, it's 1913 and things are in a very bad conflict. And a play, if it's going to be a real play and not a history lesson, has to have a theme. Mm-hmm. So the theme is the great leader, Emmeline, trying to figure out why that strategy is not working because it wasn't working. At that point, things were getting worse and not better. So what's the X factor about what the opposition is doing and why the opposition is getting so entrenched that's being missed in their calculation. So if I had to, if I had to put my finger on a single sentence that would be the theme of the show, it would be that great leaders question their actions and have the wisdom to reassess them. Mm-hmm. What's your, what, what was your theme? Was it about the transformation of the two men somehow through their friendship? Uh, yeah, there's a line in the story that um, that Susan, you know, Ben Ben talks about his wife telling him this story about these two enemies, and you know, you can't you can't hate someone when you know their story. You um, you aren't enemies when you know them, and I that was that's kind of through there because when Robert is arrested. He is reviled by the public. They call him a demon. They call him a devil. And they want to lynch him. And Ben isn't there to save... I mean, he's there to save his life because lynching is a crime. He's there to save the people from lynching him as much as he's there to save Robert from being lynched. 
but he comes to to really like him and and still he goes through with his duty because that's he doesn't have a choice that's why it's a tragedy um but he is he doesn't feel um any kind of how do i say um he rancor? he sees he says yeah no no rancor and he sees that he's not going to like just go out there and and torture this guy and like some hangings are he's going to give him a death with dignity despite the situation so that's about the only friendly thing he can he can make the hanging painless your your plot's pretty short and straightforward could you just recap it for folks yeah sorry i keep i keep uh forgetting that not everybody knows it because I think about it all the time. Um, so uh, there is a man, Robert Day, who was arrested for murder. Robert um, Ben Holmes re- arrests him. He's the sheriff. And then he guards him through eight months of the, the trial, the conviction, the appeal, the um, and, and all the things that go with that process through the criminal justice system until ultimately... Ben must hang Robert for murder, and then he buries him. And um, we we feel the world around them, their wives, their children, the the public, but we don't see them. Um, and so through the process, they become friends. And both of them have secrets. Both of them have history in war, uh, and they find that that they can understand each other, even though they're quite different people and they help each other. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They learn about themselves by learning about each other. Yes. I think it's a good juncture for me to ask you the question that uh, stuck out for me in listening to your play. So um, about 20 minutes, 25 minutes before the end of the play, uh, about an hour and 15 minutes into it, um, a Day is in his prison cell. We've just had Ben's thoughts, uh, Ben's self-reflections on the situation that the, uh, the appeal didn't work and a date's been set for the hanging. And um, the narrator says that uh, Day has acquired an inner peace even a joy at the life he's leaving behind. And that, that really stuck out for me um, because that would not be every prisoner's experience of long imprisonment, particularly in a cell as dark as that one with so little diversity of human companionship, just the sheriff visiting whenever he can. And it seems to me that that change in day of accepting his death and um, going to it cheerfully, they're, they're talking about how he's going to tell jokes on the gallows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, and I think he's partly doing that to help his friend, who he knows it's really hard for the sheriff to hang him. Um, that, that really turns the whole play, would, would you say? Would you agree with that? It, it is. It was a... It was quite the transformation, and I found references to that in my research that 
he had become um, at peace. And part of it was the gallows conversion. It's he he uh, decided he was going to once he realized he didn't have any way out, then he was going to do everything he could to make sure that he um, could see his wife in heaven. I mean, mm-hmm. so so he developed this there's no fear and and more acceptance but beyond that i i saw that that he saw um he was he is actually looking outside of himself and seeing how much he ben was suffering i think early on robert's pretty much all about robert um i you know he's the one who's scared and he's fighting and he's angry and and but later as he's coming to accept his fate, he's also looking out for his friend. Yeah. So that's a profound psychological journey. You know, one of the one of the uh, potential questions that that we were asked in preparing for this talk uh, was, "What is something about yourself that um, future historians will not get from your?" <laughs> <laughs> your immediate biography or from just hearing or reading the play. And um, there's there's something in my background that I don't uh, list in my biography very much. And that is I did a three-year training program as a pastoral counselor. Ah. And yeah, I wouldn't have known that. So I studied um, – I had about 10 years of making a real, I, I was not involved in theater at all. Um, and I made a real project of um, how the mind works. Uh, part of my, part of those 10 years were me getting a master's in philosophy. And I became a teacher briefly, uh, university instructor, instructor briefly. And I talk about that, but I don't talk about the pastoral counseling, spiritual part. Um which is uh, really looking at what egoic strategies are and the tales we tell ourselves and the terrors that drive us. And all of that introspection is very useful for getting behind that to see what's the essence that's, that's driving a character. And when you take away all those egoic structures, what's left? Is there anything left? And it seemed to me when I heard that line that... Um, in your play, that uh, Robert had had a connection with what's left. Yeah. When all of his strategies were gone and all of his fears were gone because the death became a certainty. So you can't fear a certainty. Um, and I, I just love to hear more about that within your play. Wow. Thanks I think for that's articulating. really fascinating because that, turns everything to get us to the type of ending with these two men that we have is his transformation in the cell and what he's seeing about himself that he can get behind, that he can literally get in the back of to see from the backside of what he's been doing and how he's been living. Cause that's the only thing that's going to bring you that kind of peace and joy in my I- Oh, I love you saying that because I because I never thought it out like that. I just felt it. Mm-hmm. I spent a long time living with these guys in my head, and actually, the his his um, his coming to terms with it 
spin part of the earliest portion of the play I was working on mm-hmm. and the part that is I've lived along with um, working out well, you spelling it out like that it it's yeah that's where I'm going with it um I felt um I used to write obituaries maybe that's something I yeah that's <laughs> something I've, I've never put here um I, I struggle a lot with how do I answer this uh, question about what do you think about, you know, what's about yourself that people aren't going to learn. But the writing of the obituary column was a transformative experience. I spent many years um, taking these bits of people's uh, information and and reassembling the life uh, as a gift to the family. I, I wrote a they were news stories. They, these were not written by the family at this point in my newspaper's history. Um, these were written by the reporters. And so I did everything I could to make it matter, make this person's life matter for the last time. I, I saw it as a gift to the family and a way to help the family through the process of grief. But I also felt in doing this so much of a, of a resolve to make my life matter I didn't want to come to the end of my days with people going, well, you know, all I can say about her is that she liked to watch television or something, which is what somebody said once in an obit. And that made me so sad. Um, So I feel as Robert is there reevaluating his life that it's like I just kind of reentered that that mood I always was in in writing an obit. And... And you go into reflection big time and and you you see what really mattered. And uh-huh. so I'm just putting him, you know, I'm sitting there letting him go inside me and talk through me and and um, figured, well, that's probably what I would do. And I and I always have to have it come from in instead of from without because I'm not the observer at that moment. I am him. And that. That brings stuff out of Ben. Ben's pretty reserved. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I've read about him, he was bashful. I mean, super shy. He was, and super kind. But he also was really a publicity shy. I don't find much about him in the newspapers. I don't find um, his words. I really wanted hard to find even one sentence by him so I could hear his voice. So I had to live in with Ben too. I'm a little more like Ben though. I mean, a lot more like Ben. I'm, I'm quiet, introspective, shy. Do you, do you have uh, brothers? Do you have male siblings or I you have, get married kind of young? Cause you have a good male voice. Oh, I got that. I, I got the help on that from two men that I know. Um, I, I did not marry young, and I have one brother who is really shy himself, but we're close. We're like a year apart, um, mm-hmm. one week less than a year apart. Um, so when I began writing this play, I asked two actors whom I trust and have known a long time if they would help me develop these characters because I wanted them to be authentically male, and they've been fully embracing in the process. That's great. Are the ones that I saw a picture online 
of two men at music stands in Longview. That was the man, yes. And is that who we hear in the play for keeps? No, uh, the play for keeps actors are uh, from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Uh huh. And I did. I wasn't present for anything. No rehearsals. That was a good test of my play to find out if my words were going to actually be read as I heard them in my head by people who were nowhere near me. And I, I was, I loved what they did. I, I loved listening to them read my words as I heard them and, and the quality. Oh gosh, I was blown away by it. They did a very, very good job. I was, I was quite impressed. Oh, me too. And I listened to everything on Play for Keeps. I'm a, I, I'm Right away, as soon as something new is up, I'm I listen to it as soon as I have the the time to open up for it, and I they're all so different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, your play really works well on the play for keeps format because it is it is um, it's a she's talking to her her imagination in some in most of it, and mm-hmm. and so it really is it's very close to radio you might say i mean i think play for keeps is kind of just a little bit like radio when i do it others um obviously i wrote it to perform myself and i think there's one other on the play for keeps website that's a one woman show that the the gal wrote it to perform herself yeah that's uh one of the first ones the artichoke uh Mm -hmm. the artichoke play (laughs) yes um but I've I've mounted it. I had a full production last April, which is how uh, Jim Pagliasati came and saw it to know that he wanted to put it on, which was absolutely wonderful. And um, but so I don't have a fourth wall at all. I go, I literally walk down into the audience and tell things to very specific people because I've uh, conjured up. Emmeline has conjured up a a full audience. Uh, like she will have in New England to tell her story to. So um, you had to make up a lot of stuff. I, I didn't. I only had to make up a um, psychological turning point, or I should say infer a particular issue around which to build a psychological turning point so that, you know, we, we have an inner conflict and we build to a climax and there's a decision that's made and there's a resolution, right? So there's our structure. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to do a lot more inferring, I think, than I did. Yeah, yeah, reading between the lines of what I could find and, you know, taking the facts and assembling the story around those, in some many cases, a very thin little skeleton. Um it was a challenge, but a fun one, uh, but it took a long time. Um, one of the biggest uh, challenges I had was in the research, because, as I said earlier, the story's not in the history books, and if there were letters and diaries, they were not preserved, and even the court records won't, weren't preserved, except for the Supreme Court decision to deny the appeal. So from that, I have some essence of uh, I, I can read the information, the the charges. I can read those. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the the judge's words where he's you know telling Robert um, 
he's going to be hanged. Those are from the newspaper. And I found it took me a while to find um, more than just the Kalama Bulletin, which I can get in our local library. I was looking for other newspaper stories, and most of these newspapers were not preserved. But I got a hold of the state librarian, and she sent me Robert Day's autobiography that had appeared in the newspaper, and that just opened things wide. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. yeah. It helps to have an autobiography. I had one. Emmeline Pankhurst has her autobiography called My Own Story, which you can read in PDF form online at any time. Um, so I had plenty of her talking about her own life. So you found an autobiography letter to the editor? Um, a, uh, he had, I, I, in my play I have, he's written it out and given it to the reporter. He may have just given it orally. Either way, a reporter just wrote, a, uh, put it all down just in his own words. Um, and so I got a lot of information from that and it sent me off. I've had to also track uh, through errors you know, I saw do searches for Robert Day and searches for Robert T. Day and Robert Thompson Day. And I found Robert S. Day and Robert L. Day. And it's still the same Robert Day, Bob Day. And um, oh. and and then uh, the names of the the sheriff, the name of the um, the victim. And it's been hard, but um so that's your challenge. The wonderful was, question we were offered is: <laughs> that what are your challenges the, in telling that the was story? The first finding one. finding, was the, the, first one. finding the, the real story is finding the real story. And um, like we we were questioning, you know, what a what about Ben Holmes's military service? And when I found he had been a deserter, that was a huge shock. And then I had to figure out why did he and make a you know figure that story out because I didn't have it. I only had the the details in the register. Um, the other challenge was giving myself permission to not be the reporter because I'm a newspaper reporter and I had to turn into a playwright and I had to uh, not make, not make historical accuracy be the driving factor. It had to be there, but the driving factor was the story in my imagination and, and I, it's not going to be a documentary. It's going to be a story, a human story. And so it's a, it's a constant struggle because whenever I find a new detail, I'm like, oh, this is a wonderful detail. And I, how can I get it in the play? And then I have to tell myself, is this important to the play? Yeah. Is Do it important it? to their psychological journey? That's exactly. right. That's right. So in, in, in my case, the, one of the biggest challenges was the structure. Um, I didn't lack for autobiography. Uh, I have Emmeline's speeches. You can also read those online. Um, her daughter, Sylvia, wrote a biography of her mother in the context of the story of the whole suffragette movement. Um, so I, obviously I'm you know, selected topics to go through, which is, you can't tell this story without talking about the force feeding. Yeah. So you have to, that's going to be the biggest, most intense, most emotional of the episodes to cover in this story. So the first thing you do is you figure out 
where to stick it. And it goes right dead in the middle of the second act. <laughs> that's, that's where it has to go. <laughs> and if it brought the, me to tears. I tell you, it's so emotional. If it's the biggest thing. So, um, uh, so I did an outline of all the topics and, and then I wrote it really quite quickly. I put myself down in my chair for five hours a day for 16 days and wrote it straight through. But, um, episodes that had already been written had to be, uh, picked up and reordered in the play to be effective in terms of their structure for the dramatic build of her psychology, of her personal story, because it, it can't be a history lesson. It has to be about what she's considering in a personal battle to get to a new result, which is a different tac- tactic and strategy. And so to some extent, um, I made that up. The existing historical information about what she was doing when and what the tactic was as soon as she got back from America. First of all, she was arrested in, I think it was Liverpool Harbor. It was one of those West Coast harbors of, of England where they... Uh, literally brought out the gunship and cleared the harbor to arrest her off the steamer. Oh my gosh. It was a big deal. And they arrested her, but then she got out and then there was a whole new strategy. And that strategy was about not going to parliament, but um, proclaiming that, you know, since parliament doesn't think we're real citizens and we don't really have rights because we're denied the right to petition to parliament anymore then we will throw ourselves on the mercy of the great man, which is the king. So the whole, the whole structure of her, her particular thrust changed from a legislative structure to uh, an appeal to uh, patriarchy on its, on its own terms in the sense of being the protector, right? So mm-hmm. the king needs to protect us by giving us our civil rights. And that was really the only place she could go because all the legislative part had been done over five years and, and was a total dead end because of the prime minister who could veto anything. So, and he was dead set against it. His name was um, uh, Herbert Henry Asquith. And yes, she talks a lot about him and, oh my gosh. Yeah. And his his Trumpian womanizing, big yeah. time, big time womanizing. Um, so there was this change in the tactic, but in terms of her having a diary that she published at the time about, oh my goodness, our strategy isn't working and what am I missing in my evaluation of the situation and how have I failed? No, there's none of, there's none of that. I had to come up with that because of the existing evidence of how it shifted and Mm -hmm. also getting to know her as a person. And one of the reasons it shifted was in terms of the, the literal prison battles, the battle between the prison and the woman's body, because the women would go in and they would not eat and they would become ill and the government did not want them to die in prison, so they would be discharged to get better. And in the early days, that was the end of their sentence. And in the later days, 
they were watched while they got better so that when they got better, they could be brought back into prison and do it all over again to finish their sentence. And that was really horrible. And so they, a couple of the suffragettes, well, maybe more than a couple, but it was started by Emmeline's own daughter, Sylvia, who was also a suffragette leader in her own right, um, stopped drinking. And that is very much not widely known, that they went on thirst strikes. Now, a thirst strike is a very dangerous thing. Oh, yeah. You can go without food far longer than you can go without water. Very dangerous thing, what it does to the body when you have that much toxins festering inside. And, um, And so she's questioning, can we really keep doing this particular strategy at this level of cost to the women? Because they're not they're not just being, you know, clubbed in the head and dead on the field of metal, which would be the London street carrying a sign outright. Or they're not like Emily Davis running in front of the king's horse. Yeah. Built outright. Oh. It's a oh. long, slow, horrible, lingering death that you don't recover from. She herself, Emmeline, did this strategy herself. And she got um, uh, liver damage that lasted the rest of her life. She was always a little yellow. Her, she, her body never recovered. Mm. So she's questioning her tactics and she's questioning the nature, the very nature of what the entrenched opposition is. Why do the men feel so insulted? Because that's what they felt. So she really takes a, a good look at that. And that's why you got to play instead of a history lesson. Yeah, it's like they're they're thinking, okay, we're supposed to take care. We're supposed to do for the women. Obviously, they don't, they don't think we're doing enough. They don't think we're doing it right. Um, and, and they are insulted and they're wrong, uh, but they couldn't see that. They couldn't see that it's, it's very much like the American Revolution where, you know, no taxation without representation um, or, well, they can't, they can't do anything. They can't petition because they're not voters. They can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was really moved in hearing their, your play and, and angered that people could treat each other like this. Yes. Yes. And um, Emmeline comes to the conclusion that in this particular battle, this sex battle between men and women, we can't, we can't leave each other. We're part of a couple. We mm. make children. We're not the invading British occupying Kenya You know, where we can get out and leave them to themselves. The men can't get away from us and and leave us to ourselves. And she knew how a good relationship worked because she had it with her own husband. She did. She had excellent relationships with men. And men were willing to put their lives on the line for her. It wasn't just a woman's battle. There were a number of men who really... Uh, stepped up in a in a very big way, including the founder of the 
of the Labour Party, the British Labour Movement, a Scot named Keir Hardy. So um, what is next for you? Are you doing something after this play? Are you working on a new project? Um, I'm always got something working. I, uh, but what is coming up next and uh, in August is that I'm going to be um, workshopping The Harder Courage, which is um, one of the things I had hoped to have happen when I entered it in the Ashland New Plays Festival. And it made it to the finals, but not the in the four who got workshopped. Mm-hmm. And I had an opportunity to bring it up again. It still hasn't been produced, so it was still uh, available to be sent out to Theater 33 in Salem, Oregon. Uh, and uh, so this um, August 7th through the 11th, it'll be workshop down there. And so we are, we'll be, I'll be doing some rewrites and stuff during the rehearsal process. And then I'll, we'll be talkbacks every night. And I'm very excited about that. I'm also uh, writing, a, working on a short story right now for a mystery. I'm hoping to get it into a mystery magazine. And I have another historical play I'm working on um, about a 19th century female journalist. Mm. Not not Nellie Bly, but in the same era. Um, but she, I'm making her up. And I've got a, a short play I just wrote. I'd like to in, do some silly stuff once in a while. And this was just a, a more like a sketch comedy, I guess. But it's um, a, a comic play about a woman who receives an unexpected delivery of a hippopotamus. <laughs> Well, I wish uh, I wish I could put on your your work. You're out of our geographical area from my local playwrights festival, which is basically Roseburg to Reading. If if you can drive to see your show and come to a, a few rehearsals, we'll put on your play. We kind of consider it that's our geography here down uh-huh. here in Ashland. Um, but our um, short play festival that we've done. Well, we've really done it for about 13 years, but under the name Moonlighting, this will be our 10th year. And um, so it's usually between five and seven short plays. And I've written a new piece uh, uh, that's contemporary, um, informed by the fact that I did the Pankhurst one, where uh, a very upset woman who is um, pregnant talks about uh, the nature of rights and how we don't know what that is anymore. And that's how all these um, anti-choice, anti-abortion laws are able to come to the fore in the country because we've forgotten what the meaning of rights are when rights are about um, uh, things you, instead of your metaphysical state of being, they're about things that can be done to your body. So for example, like healthcare being a right or squatters rights to a piece of property or animal rights, animals that don't have free will in the sense that we understand it, um, having rights. So she draws the distinction between, uh, the rights that the country's founded on in the English civil war occurred on, which are like metaphysical rights to 
your integrity for the king not to own you essentially right mm-hmm. versus good policy good political policies that get called rights so she stands up and talks about that and how this is going to radically affect her life and her future as a lawyer which she wants to be she's in school to be a lawyer oh so that, that sounds was, really interesting that was my new project it's a 12 minute monologue which it turns out I'm probably delivering. <laughs> yeah. Do you usually write uh, for yourself? I mean, I, I know that you specialize in one-woman shows, so I guess that's a no-brainer. But if you write something that's more in one character, are you also thinking of, of performing it yourself? Uh, this is the only short monologue I've ever done. And I did write it for another actress who I thought would be at it um unfortunately she's not going to be able to do it so as i've been doing it for other people to work on the writing the feedback has been you need to get up and do this yourself (laughs) you need to sell this piece yourself so now i'm doing it um i always wrote the pankhurst for me to do specifically my intention was to tour this uh this year and next year um, right before it went up in, uh, 2018, April of 2018, um, the British had had their hundred year anniversary of the, of the first women's right to vote. And that was the women over 30 with some level of property or other educational qualifications. Um, and then, uh, 1919, a few days ago, in fact, was when, the 19th Amendment was passed and women could have a Congress passed it, but then it had to get ratified by the states and that was in 20. So in these years, it was my plan to tour it, but I'm not able to leave home and, and tour it. I'm just not physically able to do it. Uh, it's, a, it's a big deal to get a full set waiting for you <laughs> in every venue you go to and, and run my company. I run Nashland Contemporary Theater at the same time. So the wonderful play for keeps podcast is the great way for me to tour it without touring it. So I'm really thrilled that the show can go around the world without my body going with it. It is a, a, a wonderful service. I mean, the plays on there, I, I can see them in my head and I'm so excited to be able to, to see so much theater in my head when, where I live, it's a, bit of a distance to theater I can go to Portland it's about an hour but um mostly the theater I see is this theater that uh, I I help put on in my local community theater mm-hmm. yes Which I is, saw that you're very involved with that I am very involved with it yes um and we try to do as best you know as we can we've we've got our own high standards to hold up to but there's only so much you can do when you're in a small town. And one of those things we don't do enough of is bring in new works. Um, there's always that little bit of nervousness of, well, no one's heard of it. Are they going to even come? Yeah. And I'm there to feel, I really feel like I want to be the advocate for new works and new playwrights. So I'll try to wedge that in there somehow. That's great. That's wonderful. You've got your community theater in such a forward-thinking mode. 
I'm doing my best. <laughs> we're we're all pretty passionate about it though. So it will it'll happen. It just uh we just have to be open to it. Yeah. So in answer to your question, my my other plays, yeah. uh only of which there are a few little short plays uh that have been produced in, in our reading series over the years. Um those are not for me to perform. Uh, those have other other characters. There are three or four of them. And I have um, another full one act that was put on in my, in my drama school in my early 20s. Um, but other than that, I haven't been focusing on being a writer primarily. I've mainly been a producer for the last 10 years. And yeah. before that, I had that hiatus as a as a philosophy student and then a philosophy instructor. And before that, in the 90s, I was a professional theater producer in the Southeast, and I toured Shakespeare plays and original children's musicals and American classics through five states. Oh, uh, wow. That was exhausting. I imagine <laughs> so. It was exhausting. It's good to stay in one place and work in my garden. So it's been a delight talking to you and um i hope to see you again i'm gonna be driving up to seattle this summer and i'll contact you oh awesome i would love to meet on the yes, way yes that would be great to meet on the way um I'm, like i said i'm running hours thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed listening to leslie sleep and janine grizzard be sure to subscribe and tune in next week Play for Keeps podcast is produced by Ashland New Plays Festival and Play for Keeps. This podcast was produced by Andy Herndon, art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis. Play for Keeps is directed by Jim Pagliasotti. Written content is edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Kyle Hayden, Jackie Apodaca, and Beth Kander. This is your host, Mary Claire Erdenast. Please visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Help us spread the word. Follow, like, share, and retweet. See you next time at Play for Keeps podcast. Books are meant to be read. Plays are meant to be said.